0: So we're continuing on in our sermon series in in Branch Out. Uh, We're going to be uh, this week, next week, and then, whoops, one more week after that. Uh, we'll wrap up on June the 19th. This morning, we're actually going to be kind of wandering through four different passages in the book of Revelation. Now, don't panic. You know, people hear Revelation and they start heading for the doors. That's that really mysterious book at the end of the Bible that nobody can understand and nobody can figure out that talks about beasts and and, and, and end of the world and Armageddon and all that. Uh, there are some of those things in, in Revelation. I think Revelation actually has been kind of grossly misinterpreted by some sensationalist. And I think what we're going to find today is it's actually very easy to understand as we ask the question of how do we branch out into our culture? How do we we take our love for Jesus and care well for our community, for the world in which we live? Uh, And so as we uh, think about that this morning, the uh, the title of the sermon is Your Kingdom Come, Racial Unity in Kirkwood. Now, uh, obviously, we don't all just live right here in this neighborhood and in Justin Kirkwood. So the question goes beyond that. It goes to, to all of our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our schools where we attend, uh, wherever we find ourselves. Uh, the question of how does my relationship with Christ impact my my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions when it comes to the question of racial unity? Clearly, this has been a hot-button topic in our culture uh, for a long time, and, and in St. Louis in particular, in the last two years, no one needs a refresher course on all the things that have been happening and the different opinions that have been floated out there and the different uh, answers that have been given uh, to this question. We want to go to God's Word, and what I think we're going to discover is that way before we began to think about this question, God was way ahead of us. Uh, And he has already spoken his truth uh, on several different layers about this particular topic. But this morning, what we're after is what exactly does God's eternal kingdom look like? What's the end game? Where are we headed? Now, a lot of times you don't know the answer to that question. You don't know what the details of your life are going to look like tomorrow because it's not tomorrow yet and you can't see into the future. I can't tell how my life is going to end. I don't know that. But God steps back from time because he's not restricted in time and he has given us a picture of his eternal kingdom and I believe what we're gonna see about his kingdom that he's told us is coming will give us very good practical insight as to how we live today in the context of this question. So hear the word of God. We're going to be in Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Revelation 21, and Revelation 22. You may not want to try to flip through in your own Bible. You can follow on the screen or in the, I think it's in in the bulletin as well. But hear the word of God. The apostle John is writing about his visions and he says, and they sang a new song saying, "'Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, "'for you were slain, "'and by your blood you ransomed people for God "'from every tribe and language, people and nation. "'And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, "'and they shall reign on the earth.'" And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could, could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then finally, in chapter 22 of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river... Excuse me, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. And ever. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To Him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, the question of uh, race relations in our culture, the challenges that we have faced over the, the centuries, Lord, the, the, not just the, the immediate past, uh, but for generations. Uh, we have we have struggled mightily and have failed at the notion of unity, at the notion of, of peace and harmony with people with whom we look different or uh, find ourselves in a different socioeconomic uh, place, different neighborhoods, different schools. Father, there, there's something broken in the human heart that brings out uh, sometimes the very worst in us when it comes to how... We interact with one another, particularly those with whom we are different. Father, the picture you paint in Revelation is a radically different picture. And it is not our responsibility to critique your word and to decide what we will accept and what we will reject. It is our responsibility, if we are disciples of Jesus, to accept your authoritative word and to see our lives transformed so that they would come more in conformity with your truth, because your truth sets us free. Sets us free to love in ways we could never imagine. Sets us free to uh, truly and honestly not just pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but to live that out in our lives. Father, the the culture around us uh, has so many different opinions and thoughts. And uh, we have, we, we've been almost drowned in them. Lord, we don't come here to hear man's words. What I have to say on this topic is, is just one, one more person's perspective. Father, I pray that you would uh, not let me be a hindrance this morning, but that you would come, that you would teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak your word and that you would give us an ear to hear what you say to your church this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon in a sentence this morning is simply this, understanding the unity of God's eternal kingdom makes Jesus' disciples responsible to live out that reality here on earth. So unlike, you know, unless you cheat in the the mystery novel and go to the end to see who survives and who doesn't, right, you don't know the end of the story until you ultimately get there. However, God has given us the end of the story. He has given us a picture of where we're headed. He has told us what his eternal kingdom is going to look like, and therefore, it would be wisdom on our part to say, well, if that's where we're going, then why not today? If that's the end game, if that's why God is putting these things together in the way he is, why wouldn't we get on board with that sooner instead of later? Why wouldn't we not only pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but why wouldn't we go ahead and and, and live that out? in our lives, when it comes to the question of racial unity. We're going to look at that from four different aspects this morning and see what scripture would teach us. The first is this, that unity, according to Revelation, in particular Revelation 5, where we're going to start, is based on an active grace. Unity is based on an active grace that that is alien from you and me. It's not our actions, it's someone else's. And in this case, it's the lamb who is being worshiped. And we also know him as the Lord Jesus. And so the crowd before the throne says, you were slain and by your blood, you ransom people for God. The act of grace of God is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. You have a problem with God. I have a problem with God and it's not a small one. It's actually an eternal issue because we have rebelled against God. We've gone our own way. And in doing so, not only have we offended God, but we've also hurt others. And God's real big on us not hurting each other. And he holds us accountable for our words and our thoughts and our deeds that go against his perfect will. And so when I gossip about you, when, when I spread a bad report about you, when I, I lose my temper with you, I'm dishonoring God, and that's offensive to God, but it's also harmful to you, and we're called to account for those things. We must stand before God and account for every word and action of our lives. Now, if, if that doesn't make you a little bit nervous, you're not thinking clearly. Clearly. As I think about standing before God and being the person who has to account for my actions, I'm in big trouble. But what we learn in Revelation and what we see all throughout Scripture is that God pays the price for us, that Jesus did not leave us alone in our sin. In fact, Paul says it like this in the fifth chapter of Romans. He really kind of plays it out a little bit. He says this, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So Paul says, you know, people don't die for each other maybe, I mean, just maybe in the rarest of circumstances, somebody might die for a really good person. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you see that clearly? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God sent his son to die, not for really nice, sweet people. God sent his son to die for his enemies. Nobody does that. Nobody. Nobody. And here we see the gospel in all of its glory. And we understand that that this unity that we are going to see in Revelation is based on an act of grace. Jesus is worthy to be praised because he paid the price for your sin and for my sin. And he calls us to trust him and walk by faith. But not only that, Jesus is worthy because his grace is both boundless and inclusive. You ransom the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The, 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 The mercy of God, the grace of God is boundless. It knows no national boundaries. It doesn't say I like this people group over that people group. It doesn't say I like this economic class over that economic class. Every people group across the planet is invited into a relationship with God for eternity through Jesus Christ. Unity is based on an act of grace that is boundless and inclusive. Jesus is also worthy because he has given us a new unified identity. You have made them, all of them out there, all these scattered groups, all these different nations and tribes and languages that are, that are all disjointed from each other, that are all somehow separated from each other. You have made them a kingdom. You've brought them together. You've made out of the many one. And you've given them a role to be priests for our God, that we would represent God to the nations, Jesus is worthy because He's given us a new and unified identity. Have you ever seen the the, the seal of the United States of America? You probably have. If you've been in, in history class yet, you, you've probably seen this from time to time. Uh, there's a lot of things you could say about uh, about the eagle and about the the uh, the picture there, but the words are important. E, plur, "E pluribus unum" at the top of the page means out of the many. One. In other words, uh, years ago, as our country was being founded, people looked around and noticed that people were coming from all different parts of the globe and ended up here. So we had people from all different continents, all different kinds of people groups, all different language, but they were all coming to be part of the United States. They were all coming to, you know, what we've now said, you know, to, to find the American dream. And out of the many has become one. Now that is a wonderful notion. I, I love that about our country, that we want to invite people to come be part of this, that we, that we appreciate the freedoms that we have and the land of opportunity in which we live. And, and all if you want to come, come on and join us, right? Because you can, you can experience this for yourself. That's a wonderful notion. And I would say it's also a fleeting hope. It's a moving target that we hit sometimes, but more often than not, we miss. People groups come to America and they and they stay within their same groups. They don't necessarily branch out. People that look alike and are and are of the same socioeconomic level or of the same color tend to tend to stay together. And there tends to be, while this is a wonderful hope and while this is an outstanding motto, and I and I love the ideal that it represents because I think it's based actually on scripture, man can't get there by himself. Humanity is never going to reach this utopia on earth where people get along together because until Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom, that's the only way unity is ultimately going to happen in its purest and truest form. So we must base Our work to unity. We must base our efforts and our actions and our thoughts about what it means to be racially unified. We must base them not just on a a seal and and on a thought, as good as it, it might be, as wonderful as what it might represent. We must base our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not about just being unified, it's about being unified under the gospel of Jesus Christ, that being our foundation. Uh, I know a lot of you like John Piper. He's written a lot of good books. My mom actually passed this one on to me a week or so ago. I've been reading it. It's called Bloodlines. And uh, it's a uh, the subtitle is Race, Cross, and the Christian. And uh, there are a lot of good good uh, quotes in there. I'm, I'm going to read you a paragraph I read to the staff the other day. Because Piper speaks to the fact that, that our unity, the unity for which we strive as followers of Jesus is based on the gospel. He says, I believe that the gospel, and then he defines it, the good news of Christ crucified in our place to remove the wrath of God and provide forgiveness of sins and power for sanctification. That be, sanctification is a big word that means becoming more like Jesus. This is our hope for the kind of racial diversity and harmony, harmony that ultimately matters. If we abandon the fullness of the gospel to make racial and ethnic diversity quicker or easier, we create a mere shadow of the kingdom and imitation, and we lose the one thing that can bring about Christ-exalting diversity and harmony. Any other kind is an alluring snare, for what does it profit a person if gains complete diversity and loses his own soul? Unity is based on the active grace of God, and therein must be our highest priority. But secondly, unity not only based on active grace, but unity is defined in Revelation chapter 7 as peace with God and peace with our fellow disciples. So in chapter 5, the focus is on the Lamb and on Him being worthy to receive praise and glory and honor. And in chapter 7 of Revelation, the focus shifts. The focus is no longer on the lamb who's receiving praise, but rather it's on the congregation, okay? So it's like for a little while they had the, the the picture on the pastor. Now they're turning around, they're putting the camera on the congregation. And John's given a vision of this very interesting group of folks. And look at what we find here. First of all, we see this is an, it's an innumerable thong, throng. Behold, I looked at a great multitude that no one could number. But now look at how it's defined every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Here's a repetition of what we saw in chapter five. In fact, what we're seeing in chapter seven is the exact same uh, vision that John had in chapter five, but it's being seen from a different angle. As I said, John's now looking not at the throne, but now he's looking at the congregation. And what does he say? This is a diverse group. This is a group that, that's made up of every people group under the sun, unity defined as peace with God and peace with our fellow disciples. There's a group of, of folks that nobody can count and they're from every place under the sun. And what are they doing? They're, they're worshiping God in purity of thought and word and deed. What does verse nine say? They were clothed in white robes. Now, Revelation is full of all kinds of metaphorical language. And here we have a picture of white is a, is a sense of purity, but they're completely clothed. So whether it's their thought, their speech, their action, their look, it's all been purified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now they are at complete peace because not only are they clothed in white robes, but what are they waving in their hands? Palm branches, right? So go, go back to our national symbol for a second. The eagle has two different things in his talons. And the one talon, he has a bunch of arrows, has 13 arrows. And the other hand, he has what? Palm branches, right? And if you notice, his, his face is looking towards the palm branch, which says to the nations of the rest of the world, we really want to live for peace. But it also says that we got to go to war. We're willing to go to war and fight for, fight for our rights. We're not going to let anybody trample us down, right? So it's both of those things. But in this picture, in the new heavens, in the new earth, God has become our peace. He settled all the wars. He settled all the disputes. And he's brought people together from every tribe, language, and nation. And he has created one congregation. Not a bunch of different ones, but one. And our peace is complete with God, but it's also complete with one another. Look at how these people are singing, right? And it says, they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Everyone was saying that. Black and white, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, From Africa, from South America, from Antarctica. If anybody lives in Antarctica, it's pretty cold down there. I don't think they have a whole lot of people in there, but anybody from Antarctica. People in one voice were talking about our God, not your God and my God, our God. There is peace between humanity that has never existed before. And we get a glimpse of this every once in a while. You get a glimpse of God's peace occasionally. I, I, I've read a book that I would recommend to everybody, not because I think you'll agree with everything he says, but because it's so masterfully written. Brian Stevenson has written a book called Just Mercy, and, and you ought to read it. it. It probably will bother you a little bit, but I think it will do you great good. It has it is, it is fed my soul and challenged me to, to think in a whole different way. But Brian Stevenson was a very gifted young African-American who graduated from college, and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. So he went to Harvard Law School. <laughs> Yeah, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I, w- I was just popping over to Harvard Law School and getting accepted and, and going in and going through. So obviously, this guy's a brilliant guy. At Harvard Law, and maybe this is true of, of, of every law school, I'm going to pick on you, Hal, for a second. You're two. Did you have to do an internship? Does everybody have to do some kind of internship? Okay, so at Harvard, they had to do a summer internship. And he ends up down in Atlanta, Georgia, with a small group of people that work with uh Folks that are on death row, that, that there's some new evidence that maybe shows that they, they didn't get a fair trial or maybe there's some new evidence that needs to be examined, but they're poor. They have no resources to get an attorney. And so this little group of people is working. So he ends up as an intern, doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to anything to do with it. He kind of falls into it. He's forced to do it. He started late. So this is the only internship he could get. And now the rest of his life has been spent doing just that. He literally has become an advocate for people on death row. He tells a story in this book about going to a uh, going to a prison in South Alabama and he's, gonna, he's going to meet a man named Avery Jenkins, and he's going to hear his story and see if there's any reason for them. Maybe there's some, some information. And when attorneys go into prisons, you know, they have to open their briefcase and all that, but they're not subjected to, you know, you know body searches and things like that because they're representatives of the court. But in this particular uh, prison where he came in, he's kind of going through the motions of signing in, and the guard snarls at him. What are you doing? He said, I'm here for a legal visit. I was scheduled earlier this, it was scheduled earlier this week. The people in the warden's office have the papers. I smiled, spoke politely. That's fine, that's fine, but you have to be searched first. It was difficult to ignore his clearly hostile attitude, but I did my best. Okay, you need me to take my shoes off? A lot of, sometimes hardcore officers would make me remove my shoes. You're going into that bathroom and taking everything off if you expect to get in my prison. Oh, no, sir, wait, I think they're just confused. I'm an attorney. Instead of calming him down, it made him even angrier. Now you can get into that bathroom strip or you can go back to wherever you came from. And then he goes on to tell how the story unfolds and how, how awful this guy is to him. And then he goes in and he meets Avery Jenkins, who, who clearly is not in his right mind. And every time after this that he meets this inmate, Avery Jenkins, Avery Jenkins always starts a conversation the same way. I want a chocolate milkshake. Did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And every time he has to say, Avery, I can't bring you a milkshake. And besides that, he had to deal with this, this guard who hated him every step of the way. So he's he's got all this, you know, just terrible situation. It ends up that after a few months, they go to court. The judge is going to hear to see whether there's some new evidence. And he says, as I went upstairs in the courtroom, I spotted the correctional officer who uh, had given me such a hard time. So the guy that hates him actually was the guy the prison assigned to drive Avery Jenkins back and forth to the courthouse. So for three days, this guy sits in the back of the courthouse and and just sits in the back of the room and stares uh, at Stevenson as he makes his appeal. And then he takes Jenkins back to prison. After about a month, uh, he writes, Stephen's right, after a month of the hearing, uh, right before the judgment was rendered, I decided to go to the prison to see Avery to check on him. He shows up, opens the door, and here's this same guard, this, you know, guy that just hates him. Uh, He said when he passed his truck out in the the, uh, parking lot, had a big rebel flag on it and all kinds of stickers that are not appropriate for me to repeat this morning. So he comes in and here's this guy he's dealing with again. Hello, Mr. Stevenson. How are you? guard asked. He sounded earnest and sincere. Well, I'm fine. How are you? He was looking at me differently. Um, and then I, I decided to play along and be nice. Look, I'll step into the bathroom and get ready for your search. Oh, Mr. Stevenson, you don't have to worry about that. He said quickly, you're okay. Everything about his tone and his demeanor was different. Thanks. I'll go back then and sign in the book. Mr. Stevenson, you don't have to sign that. I saw you coming and signed in for you. I've taken care of you. Come on in and see Avery. They're walking in, and he says, uh, hey, um, I'd like to tell you something. I wasn't sure what he, where he was going with this. You know, I took old Avery to the court for his hearing and was down there with y'all for those three days. And, uh, well, I want you to know that I was listening. He removed his hand from my shoulder, looked past me as if staring at something behind me. You know, uh, I, um, I appreciate what you're doing. I really do. It's kind of difficult for me to be in that courtroom to hear what y'all was talking about. I came up in foster care, you know. I came up in foster care too. His face softened. Man, I didn't think anybody had it as bad as me. They moved me around like I wasn't wanted nowhere. I had it pretty rough. But listening to what you were saying about Avery made me realize that there are other people who had it as bad as I did. I guess even worse. I mean, it brought back a lot of memories sitting there in that courtroom a little later on. Uh, He looked at me and smiled. He says, you kept talking about mitigation in the the court. Mitigation means that there might be some new information that would change the outcome. So for us, the cross of Christ is the mitigation. Before the cross, we were lost. We we were accountable for our, our own sin. We had to stand before God and, and, and face his judgment and his wrath. But because of the cross, because of this new act that God has performed, that, that brings new evidence that sets us free in Christ. So when he uses the word mitigation, I wanted to give you kind of the theological context. Kept talking about mitigation in the court. And I said to myself, what the <clears throat> is wrong with him? Why does he keep talking about mitigation like that? When I got home, I looked it up. I wasn't sure what you meant at first, but now I do. And he says, sometimes I don't know what I'm saying of course. Court. The guy responds, Well, I think you've done real, real good. He looked me in the eye, extended his hand, we shook hands. He says, I was about to go inside when he grabbed my arm again. He goes, Oh wait, I have to tell you something else. Listen, I did something that I probably wasn't supposed to do. But when you know about about Avery and used to you know about him on the trip way back on that last day. Well, me and Avery, I got us off at the at the interstate at the exit on the way back and I took him to Wendy's and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. All right? Peace with one another. When we, when we see it, when we get a glimpse of it, it moves our hearts. It stirs within us that maybe there's a different way that God would have us travel than the ways that which we've chosen. Which, which are the easier pathways, humanly speaking, never necessarily bring us into conflict, never force us to ask the really difficult questions in this particular topic when it comes to race and what it could truly mean for us to be at peace with one another and to, and to move our lives in that direction. And yet we see through this the small story and we see in the book of Revelation that God's intention is that we are at peace with him and at peace with one another so our lives actually be what we're going to be doing in heaven for all of eternity, which is singing the praises of God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne in one voice with a unified message. The unity of scripture is defined as peace with God and with our fellow man. And and if we want heaven on earth, If we're going to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how can we pray that and not long for being part of what God is doing to use the gospel of Jesus Christ to answer the deepest and most difficult questions of our time, in particular this morning, the question of racial unity. Thirdly. Scripture shows us that we celebrate the creativity of the glory of God forever. Look at Revelation 21. We learn, first of all, that God and the Lamb are the source of light and life. They don't need the sun. They don't need the moon. But what's the purpose? What are we going to be looking at? What is, what is the light uh, revealing that we can see? Notice what, what John sees. Now, by its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse out. Now, skip down verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What, what is the glory of the nations? Well, just think about it in terms of, of this world. What are the things that, that we see as glorious? What are, what are things, not just in the natural order, but but man-made? Whether you've gone to the Louvre before and walked around and looked at amazing paintings, or maybe you've been to Cairo, Egypt, and, and Alexandria, and you've seen the pyramids, or, you, or you've been to the Great Wall in China. Uh, I've, I was in downtown London for one day once, and I, we just kind of walked around and looked at all of the history there. And I thought of the, the, the bombings that they survived in World War II. And I thought back to when England, you know, was the greatest trader on the planet and the, you know, the sun never set on the British flag. Thought about all the glory of that empire. I've been in, in downtown Moscow and I've stood outside the Kremlin and looked at those spires and, and I've looked at the imagery uh, of that, you know, that great patio, so to speak. And it just shouts of human determination and human grit. I've been in Germany where everything is on time, and, and everything is in order, and, and everything is clean and perfect, and nothing is broken. And then you go over the Alps, and you go into Italy, and I had a friend that, that did that one time. He said, we left Germany on a train, and when they say it's leaving at 10 in the morning, it's leaving at 10 in the morning. And then we go over the Alps, we get into Italy, we switch trains, they can't find an engine. <laughs> And we're walking around where we got to go, we got we to gotta, we gotta leave, where, where's the train, where, where's the engine? And what do they do? They will go and find an engine? No. They break out bottles of wine and big chunks of cheese and bread, and we're going to have a party until we find an engine sometime later on this week. And, and that's the beauty of the glory of the nations. The Germans make sure everything's on time, and the Italians make sure we don't take life too seriously, right? And you need both of those. Those are the glories of the nation. If you're a German or Italian, don't be offended, right? Celebrate that. You think about the, the, you know, I don't even have time to get into all of the the beauty of this world that the people bring to it, that the nations bring. Think about the Sahara Desert, an area as big as the United States of America. And for generations, people have thrived in Africa living on the Sahara Desert. How is that possible? What we call, that's good old Yankee ingenuity, right? Well, I'm glad you happened to bring that up because guess what? The Smithsonian Institute gives out awards every year called American Ingenuity Awards. You know who their youngest recipient was last year? It was a young lady named Lillian Z- Zajkowski. You know what she invented at 14 years of age? She wasn't 15 until she got the award. She was the real old. She invented this thing called the pill minder. Any of you use the pill minder this morning for your pills? If you, if you need this, you might have forgotten that you took your pills this morning. <laughs> the reason she invented that when she was in sixth grade was because her grandpa took the wrong pills and almost died. And she sat down and she figured it out. And it's been marketed literally all over the world. And she got got the Smithsonian Award for American Ingenuity, right? The glory of the nations is amazing. And we haven't even begun to touch the outer edges of it because we are a broken people. We're broken by sin. But there will be a day where God says, turn that light on because I want everybody to see what's going on around here. Look at what my children can do when when you redeem them, when you take sin out of the equation, and when you bring them into perfect unity with me and with one another, watch the glory of the nations unfold. God calls us to understand that that's coming, that that's what's in our future. But Scripture also calls us to know that there are some things that will be left behind. Look at verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But praise God that we've already read that names from the Lamb's book, in the Lamb's Book of Life come from every language, every tribe, every nation, every people group. So there are things that won't get in, things like apartheid, slavery, segregation, bigotry, just to name a few that have to do with our topic this morning. I had a friend warn me a couple of weeks ago, an African-American pastor, when I was talking to him about... I'm not sure where God's leading us, but I do believe that God's leading us to uh, address uh, this issue um, in, in some way, shape, or form. And I have a lot more questions than I have answers. But I believe that God is not just calling us to care for the poor in our community, but he's calling us to look different because our neighborhood looks different. And we're not just a neighborhood church. We never will be just a neighborhood church. But how can we skip past our neighborhood out into the rest of the world and really consider ourselves serious thoughtful, godly followers of Jesus Christ. I don't think those two things are possible. I don't think you can ignore your backyard and, and, and really seek to be a, an honest follower of Jesus. So I, I'm not sure what that looks like, but I, my heart is there. And this friend was asking me, why are you doing this? Why, you know, Green Tree has a great uh, reputation for serving others. Why don't you just kind of run down the service road? Why are you worried about kind of the, the racial makeup of your congregation? I said, well, it's because of our neighborhood. And I explained all that. He goes, well, then you better be careful. I'm like, careful, why? What do you mean you better be careful? He goes, there are going to be people that are really going to fight you on that. You could lose your job if you're not careful. Lose my job? What are you talking about? I I, I pastor one of the greatest churches in in the world, not because we're all great, but because of the gospel. He goes, there'll be people that they they don't understand it, they don't get it, and they won't like it, and they won't like you for doing it. And I don't say that to challenge anybody in this room that maybe is struggling with what I'm saying. Um, I'm saying that to, to say that we need to understand that this is a process, and we're on a journey And it's easy to sit here this morning and say, amen, amen, amen. It's quite another thing for us to take this seriously and say, you know what, five years from now, we really do hope we look a bit different. We really don't just want people to feel welcomed here, we want people to know they're wanted here. And we're actually going to set aside some of our plans and some of our desires and some of our priorities in order to care well for other people. Because if we're going to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven, then we've got to act that way. And I think his warning is a word to the wise, because I believe that Green Tree can thrive in the sense of the glory of the nations uh, being that kind of congregation. And I'm I'm going way too long, but fourthly this, the recovery is complete and our identity is secure, is my fourth observation here. In Revelation 22, listen to the, the words Uh, of the introduction of of chapter 22 the angel showed me the river of water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves were for the healing of the nations john very intentionally is taking us back to eden he's taking us back to the garden To the, the river of, the river of life, to the tree of life, to the picture of God bringing healing and, and nutrition and care for his people. And what he's saying is that, that all of that is going to be recovered. All of that is going to be redeemed. And we're going to live in that secure identity. We're going to live in that city, in that garden where God provides for all of us. And when we begin to get a glimpse of that, we begin to live our lives differently. Notice in verse four that all disciples know God intimately. They will see his face. They will recognize him. They will be in a close and intimate relationship. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? They ran and hide. They ran and hid, right? God said, where are you? And Adam said, well, I hid because I was naked. God's gonna take all of that away and we're gonna be back face to face with God. Not only that, but all disciples will know our identity is secure in him. His name will be written on their foreheads. I don't think that literally means we're going to get you know, stamped as we go into heaven. I think what it means is when you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you're going to spend eternity, it's going to be obvious that they belong to Jesus. And it's going to be obvious to them that you belong to Jesus. And that's all that's going to matter. And if it's all that's going to matter, then why isn't it all that's going to matter right now? Why does it have to be something different than that? Why would we settle for something less than the glory of God? If we're gonna pray your kingdom come, your will be done, why don't we insist of ourselves, not of others, we can't can't figure out Kirkwood much less the rest of the world, but we we can work on Green Tree Community Church. How about we hold ourselves to seeing Jesus in one another? Ultimately, all disciples know the unlimited glory of God. There's no lamp, there's no sun. Why? Because the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Brian Stevens tells another story. Stevenson tells another story about when he was a little boy. He was 10 years old. And uh, his mom took him to church and there was a new boy there that was with a friend of his and he had a terrible speech impediment and and he stuttered. And Brian didn't realize, he thought the kid was kidding around. He thought it was kind of a joke. And so he started making fun of him. And his mother heard him. Okay, from a few feet away. Now, if you're 10 years old, the last thing you want to have happen to you publicly is to have your mother correct you, right? And he said, I felt this vice grip on my ear as I was being escorted over here for a conversation. Which was not a very pleasant conversation. And he, and he shares, she said, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. I can't. And he's like, what did I do? And she explained that this young man ha- actually had a speech problem, that it, wa- it wasn't something to joke about. And then she said, you're going to go do two things. You're going to march right back over there and you're going to tell him you are so sorry. You're going to apologize. And then you're going to hug him and you're going to tell him you love him. All right? Now all his buddies are still standing over here. Right? And so he, he's like, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Not only being corrected by your mom, but now I got I Apology, okay, I get it. But to hug him and say that I love him—I mean, now this is getting a little bit crazy. So he goes over and uh, and and he does because he's scared to death of his mother, and and I just reading it. I was scared of her reading a, reading the book. She looks like a great mom. Um. So he he uh, he says, "Hey, man, I'm sorry." I genuinely, uh, I was genuinely apologetic for laughing and even more deeply regretful of the situation I put myself in. I looked over at my mother who was still staring at me. So I lunged at the boy to give him a very awkward hug. I think I startled him um, by grabbing him like that. But when he realized I was trying to hug him, his body relaxed and he hugged me back. My friends looked oddly as I spoke. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, uh, Also, uh, I love you. I try to say it sincerely, as I could uh, to get away, uh, to get away with a half smile as I spoke. I was still hugging the boy so he couldn't see the disingenuous look on my youthful face. It made me feel less weird to smile like that. It was a joke. But then the boy hugged me tighter and whispered in my ear. He spoke flawlessly without a stutter, without hesitation. I love you too. We both started crying. When the glory of God is revealed to you and you see it for what it is and where we're going, where we're headed, we long for the opportunity, awkward though it may be, (laughs) odd though it may be, to be part of it. God's kingdom is going to come. We've read what it's going to look like, all languages, all tribes, all people. It's going to be an awkward journey for us between now and then, but if that's where we're headed... Why not begin today? Will you pray with me? Father, we uh, bow before your word. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a picture of what true unity is all about. You don't take away our diversity. Very clear in John's vision. He could tell by looking at the group assembled, they were from all over the planet. Different colors, different accents, different languages, different voices, uh, different, different cultural heritages. And yet in complete unity because they were at peace with God through the cross of Christ, which brought them to peace with one another. Lord, we're not home yet. There are a lot of reasons for us to kind of, you know, <laughs> think about this and, and go, go on our, on our way. It's very hard and difficult. I don't even know what questions to ask yet, much less what answers to come up with. But, Father, you're the one who's created your kingdom the way you've created it. We just want to follow. Help us with that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.